Greetings podcast listeners, I am Dr. James Cole, and I'm back from a several month hiatus and here to again present to you my latest chapter on healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Some of you may wonder where I've been all these months and what I've been doing. Well, to sum it up in one short sentence, I've been dealing with the COVID pandemic. What you say? The COVID pandemic? Isn't that over? Isn't COVID just the glorified flu? Isn't it all just a bunch of fake news? Aren't doctors and hospitals just perpetuating this COVID lie to line their pockets with the huge wads of cash the government is showering down in the medical institutions and to those with medical degrees? Isn't COVID just a problem for people in their 80s and 90s? Isn't COVID just something the government has capitalized on to impose tight controls on Americans? Oh my gosh, my answer to all of that is no, no, and again, no. I am a doctor, but I too am an everyday citizen of this country. I'm a husband, a father, a son of an aging parent, and a member of a community who has friends who own small businesses. Just like everyone else, COVID has taken a toll on me and everyone I know in one way, shape, or form. But COVID is not fake. COVID is not something we should just all ignore, and every doctor and health system within my network of contacts is losing money, not gaining money because of COVID. Whereas I usually qualify certain aspects of my topic into the good, bad, and the ugly groupings, and whereas I've always before carved out a portion of my time to go off in some tangent to discuss one of the truly exemplary areas of healthcare in America, because I'm focusing this talk on COVID, I will not do any of that specifically. Because COVID has become such a polarizing topic in this country, I will state the status of the COVID situation as I know it and as I have personally experienced it, but I will try to not qualify any of it as good, bad, or ugly. Undoubtedly, you already know my opinion on the matter, but if not, I will let you listen and discern the status of the situation on your own. Thus, I will spend the rest of my time providing you all with a COVID update. I will address all of the nuances of the numbers, why they matter, how the hospitals have been affected, and how those of us who care for COVID patients have been affected. I will discuss how our country is doing compared to other countries, all that we have learned about treating COVID, and the difficulties our public health system has had trying to influence the course of this global pandemic. So I hope that you aren't so burned out with COVID that you'll keep listening because I have a lot to say on this topic, which has literally consumed my life for the past eight months. Since the beginning of this calendar year, there have been almost 10 million documented cases of COVID-19 in the U.S., and in that same period of time, almost a quarter million of those infected have died from the virus. That translates to an approximate mortality of about 2.5%. And to put it all in perspective, that quarter of a million deaths in the U.S. is more than all of those who have died from traumatic injuries, breast cancer, and colon cancer combined. Because the U.S. has so many people, it's not surprising that we lead the world in COVID-19 cases and deaths. But even when we stratify case and death rates per million people in a population, after excluding the tiny countries, the U.S. is still among the top tier of nations with the greatest number of COVID-19 diagnoses and COVID-related deaths. Belgium, Brazil, France, Spain, and about another 10 countries all seem to have either done a really poor job of containing the virus and controlling the spread of the disease, or we have just had some really bad luck. Many argue that because almost everyone who dies of COVID is old, that none of the mortality figures matter. Whereas it is absolutely true that 94% of Americans who die of COVID are 50 years of age or older, and the greatest percentage of those in this category are at least 85 years of age, 6% of the 238,000 Americans who died of COVID were in fact in their 40s or younger. And whereas that's only a mere 14,500 people, almost everyone seems to forget that if people only look at the farthest ends of the spectrum when looking at a population, they miss out on all that takes place in the middle. 
So what am I talking about? I'm talking about morbidity or all of the pain and suffering and physical and financial consequences associated with having a disease or illness. Fortunately, most of those who contract COVID have minimal symptoms. In fact, many are even without any symptoms at all and thus fall into the asymptomatic category. But those who are symptomatic vary greatly. Some have only mild flu-like symptoms and don't even need to see a doctor, but some get very, very sick. Between 5 to 10% of the symptomatic population needs to be hospitalized. And some of them end up on a ventilator. Some end up on a ventilator for many days or even weeks, and some of them need a tracheostomy in order to get them off the ventilator and in order to get them to a weaning facility. Some of the sickest patients end up on dialysis, often temporary for a few weeks to a few months, but some will likely require dialysis for the rest of their lives. Almost everyone who becomes critically ill becomes tremendously deconditioned, often to the point of not being able to do even the simplest of things, making it necessary for them to spend several weeks or months in a rehab facility just to get some general strength back. Of course, all of those who survive in the categories just mentioned are unable to work for months or longer, and of course, a hefty hospital bill is often the parting gift for those who leave the hospital. Unless one is completely dependent on state Medicaid, everyone gets some sort of a bill. But none of the patients I just listed died, and thus, none of them are reflected in any of the mortality data or case fatality rates. Thus, if death is the only piece of data that people look at, they will not fully understand the true consequences of a particular illness. And what about all the long-term morbidity that we're just starting to learn about? After all, COVID hasn't even existed for an entire year yet, but we are now hearing about what people are calling long COVID. If you haven't heard the news yet, there are people who acquired the virus but never got sick enough to require hospitalization. They had a fairly mild but lingering course, but their illness never completely resolved. Yes, they improved, but perhaps as many as 1 in 20 people with mild cases of COVID still have persistent symptoms many weeks or even months after their initial diagnosis. There are reports of people diagnosed nine months ago who still have intermittent headaches, brain fog, muscle aches, extreme fatigue, shortness of breath, and low-grade fevers. Many can't work or resume the activities and or lifestyle they once enjoyed. Doctors cannot explain these persistent symptoms otherwise. The only factor common among them all is that they had a previous case of relatively mild COVID-19. Because it's well established that microscopic and larger clots form in the bloodstream of many symptomatic COVID patients, and those clots often plug up the tiny blood vessels which course through the brain, kidneys, intestine, and the other organs leading to permanent damage in those organs, it's entirely plausible that long COVID symptoms can at least in part be explained by these microscopic clots. Because younger people have tremendous organ functional reserve, most people do not suffer any noticeable consequences of the disease in the short term. However, because everyone's organ function slowly degrades over time, once one or more decades pass following this pandemic, we will likely see many of those previously diagnosed with COVID-19 experiencing early dementia, COPD-like symptoms, premature heart disease, and kidney failure. None of the patients I just talked about died, and again, they are not reflected in any case fatality rate data. However, they are casualties of COVID-19 not yet realized. As a surgeon, it would seem illogical that I would have much of any personal knowledge or insight as to this viral illness. But because I led all medical operations of an eight-nation NATO coalition force in all of southwest Afghanistan when I was last deployed, I was appointed by our hospital CEO to function as the medical specialist advisor in the COVID Incident Command Center from the very beginning of this pandemic. And thus, I've been immersed in the hospital-based aspects of this disease for the past nine months. 
Every day, I've tracked all the patients admitted to our hospital with COVID-19, those requiring a general hospital bed, those needing high-flow heated oxygen therapy, those intubated requiring ventilator management in the ICU, and every other aspect of their hospital stay. I've personally treated some of these patients in the ER and the ICU, and I've performed emergency surgery on a number of COVID patients. Like most people in this nation when the pandemic began, we feared what had already happened in Italy and other nations hit earliest, hospitals overwhelmed and overrun with COVID patients, dying in hallways, emergency rooms, and in ambulances awaiting entry to hospitals bursting at the seams with far more patients than rooms or beds. Advisory institutions, government agencies, medical and surgical societies, and of course state governors shut things down to avoid the spread of the virus. The goal was to flatten the curve, to slow the rate of the virus spreading, to prevent overwhelming surges of patients, which health systems could never accommodate, but rather to allow hospitals across the nation to accommodate smaller numbers of COVID patients at any one time for an extended length of time. If you recall, during the first month following the lockdown, almost everyone stayed home. Restaurants closed, schools closed, small businesses closed, factories closed, healthcare clinics closed, and people did not go out. We saw a lot of COVID patients in the hospitals, but because it was a new disease, most doctors literally figured out in real time how to best manage these patients. We had to redesign operational workflows to accommodate large numbers of very sick COVID patients occupying most of our ICU and entire floors of our hospital. We had to shut down elective surgery so that OR nurses could go to the ICU to help care for these incredibly complex, labor-intensive patients. In a nutshell, COVID really hurt hospitals and health systems. The cost was tremendous. Most hospitals went very deep into the red, and every hospital administrator, doctor, and advanced practice provider I know took mandatory pay cuts of up to 20% in order to keep the hospitals running. But in the end, we did handle it. We did a lot more work for a lot less money, but eventually that first wave passed, and we again resumed relatively normal hospital operations. Despite some money being given to hospitals by government programs, most hospitals are still in financial straits because of COVID. Many administrators, doctors, nurse practitioners, and PAs are still being paid less so that our hospitals can catch up financially. So we certainly didn't make more money, and the COVID problem never really ended. Businesses then opened back up. In-school learning resumed, and people grew weary of COVID. People in all sectors of society began to doubt that COVID was a problem, or even real. Various social media platforms circulated and recirculated volumes of misinformation, much of which was fraudulent and misleading at best. A few prominent doctors around the country who had no personal experience and played no role in dealing with COVID began espousing their own theories on what to do and how to do it, and why those of us in the trenches were all doing it wrong. Community leaders and politicians began to rebel against healthcare systems, and in some cases instigated members of society to, to rebel to live their lives, to stop wearing masks, and some propagated the myth of doctors getting rich off of COVID. And thus, countless people stopped wearing masks, stopped social distancing, stopped washing their hands, and stopped trying in any manner to limit the spread of the coronavirus. And what happened? The number of COVID cases exploded. People began spreading COVID-19 with abandon, often unknowingly, as perhaps up to 50% of patients contract the virus from an asymptomatic or presymptomatic carrier. And whereas the vast majority of those infected still didn't get sick enough to require hospitalization because the number of total cases rose so quickly, those in that small percentage of total cases who did get sick enough to require hospitalization started to overwhelm the hospital systems. Whereas I thought that we had it bad last May when our cases had previously peaked, our hospital is currently managing more than twice the number of sick COVID patients as we did during that peak in May. 
We have COVID patients on every floor, wing, and unit of our hospital. They range in age from 39 days old to 90 years old. We are treating pregnant women sick with COVID, children sick with COVID, previously healthy working young, young adults sick with COVID, and of course the elderly and those with pre-existing comorbidities sick with COVID. There are parts of days when every single floor bed and ICU bed are completely full. We have patients on beds and hallways because all of our rooms are full. We have patients on ER carts awaiting hospital admission, all because we have so many COVID patients in our hospital. Hospitals in our area are not able to provide much of any help as the pandemic financially hurt them so badly that they had to lay off many of their staff and now simply do not have enough doctors, nurses, and, and technicians to care for patients. However, because we learned from our last peak in May how to best manage COVID-19, we have become very efficient in dealing with this massive second wave. Day-to-day -day and often hour-by-hour, hour, we assess which elective surgeries we need to cancel so as to prevent another patient from getting admitted. Because COVID is now everywhere, nurses and other hospital staff members are getting exposed in the community and are getting sick. They can't work when sick with COVID, and thus healthcare labor pools are in jeopardy. Hospitals like ours are constantly trying to figure out how to do more with less help. Those who aren't sick are working overtime as a way of life, sweating away for 12 or more hours at a time in plasticized personal protective gowns and N95 masks. We are constantly trying to figure out creative new ways to create bed spaces, converting conference rooms to open bay wards and so on. But if there aren't enough healthy doctors, nurses, and technicians to staff these extra beds, it's all a moot point. Whereas most of the smaller community hospitals have not yet experienced the difficulties I'm, I'm describing, it's because most of their sickest patients get transferred to a larger hospital to a higher level of care. But as I write this, every large tertiary care hospital within 60 miles of our facility is on diversion. They are overwhelmed with patients. None of them are accepting transfers. Soon, the smaller hospitals will be experiencing what those of us who work in the larger facilities have been dealing with. If this trend continues, we will likely again have to suspend all elective surgery, concentrate all of our healthcare forces on treating just COVID-19 patients, and hospitals across the nation will likely follow suit. But most of society doesn't even know that this is all happening. Most people are so turned off by the term COVID that they've become numb to the topic. All people want to do is get back to living their normal lives. And I completely get it because I too am sick of COVID and I too want to get back to life as normal. But we're simply not there yet. At this juncture in the pandemic, it's pretty easy to get tested, but that seems to be a double-edged sword. Far too many people falsely believe that if they have had close personal contact with someone who they subsequently learn has COVID, that if they themselves then test negative, then they are in the free and clear. Unless the person exposed is a critical healthcare worker employed at a hospital busting at the seams with patients, then that person must be isolated. The incubation period for any viral illness can be up to 14 days, and thus, if someone is exposed to someone with COVID, he or she needs to quarantine for two weeks. That means no going to work, no hanging out with friends or family, no going to the store, no going to church, and no going to school. Testing negative within those two weeks following exposure to a known COVID patient doesn't resolve anything as the virus may still be incubating and one may test positive the very next day following a negative test result. To state it as succinctly as possible, one cannot test out of quarantine, period. For two weeks following an exposure to a known COVID-positive individual, the person exposed must remain in isolation. If one believes otherwise, then that person is selfishly jeopardizing a lot of other lives, and that is simply unacceptable. Where so many Americans just want to do what they want to do, COVID is a public health issue, 
And whereas people argue that their personal freedoms and liberties are infringed upon when someone dictates how they personally deal with COVID, it is much more of a public health issue rather than a personal health issue. Imagine if various citizens in our nation felt that it was their personal right to dump toxic waste from their family-owned business into rivers which flow through their property. Imagine if the owner of a small pharmaceutical company manufactured a drug which he claims cures something, but in fact the drug has a lot of very harmful, potentially deadly side effects. The owner wants to release the drug anyway because that's what he feels like doing. Or imagine if a number of restaurants do an amazing amount of business selling whatever it is that the public enjoys, but the inside of those eating establishments have absolutely filthy kitchens crawling with bugs. What if they have no intention of cleaning things up as they feel that it's their personal right to do what they want? Or imagine if millions of people are exhaling a potentially deadly virus onto others in every city, county, and state across our nation right now. In all of the examples given, personal freedoms and liberties get trumped by the need to maintain the health and well-being of our nation as a whole, and thus that is why COVID and all the other examples given is a public health issue rather than a personal issue. The U.S. public health system is responsible for overseeing all that pertains to the general health and welfare of the nation's residents. Federal, state, county, and municipal agencies all play a role in dealing with public health issues, and the overarching authority under which all trickles down is the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. The U.S. Public Health Service falls under this department. The federal public health agencies deal with a myriad of areas, including drug safety, the cleanliness of the water we drink, and the quality of the food we eat, the regulation of hazardous materials and substances, the financing of our government-based healthcare entitlement programs, the prevention and control of communicable diseases, and the prevention and management of regional and national epidemics. The U.S. Surgeon General leads the U.S. Public Health Service, which includes the National Institutes of Health and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But the sub-agency of our public health service, called the Commission Corps, that is the doctors, nurses, and the other public health care providers who deliver health care, is surprisingly small. There are only about 6,000 members of this group. The Tenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution delegates all powers not specifically enumerated in the Constitution to the individual states, and thus each state operationalizes the delivery of public health a bit differently, and each state directs the health and general welfare of its citizens. This is why we are seeing such different responses in the different states, why some are enforcing masks and some aren't, why some are shutting down restaurants and bars and others remain wide open for business why some schools and churches are in session while others are all remote, and why some states have such different responses to the pandemic as a whole. This all makes everything so confusing for the average everyday citizen. Do we listen to the CDC, to our congressman, to our state governor? Well, actually, in part, it's all of the above, but it's our individual state governors who set the rules and regulations for what we do in our individual states. Whereas it would be nice for us to have a national healthcare spokesman who we could all understand and trust, we really don't have that person at present. That person used to be the U.S. Surgeon General, who countless Americans would listen to, trust, and whose recommendations most of us followed back in the day. The last time we had such a notably trusted and respected figure in that position was when Dr. C. Everett Koop was the U.S. Surgeon General between 1982 and 1989. In my opinion, we desperately need another C. Everett Koop, a seasoned physician who spent a career managing patients, who understands the needs of both individuals and the public as a whole. Someone who can confidently stand before the people and articulate the truths of this pandemic to all sectors of society in ways they can all truly understand and help influence how we as individuals can take care of ourselves and others and why it's all so important. 
There's simply too much medical misinformation out there, fracturing society's health literacy, and we need a healthcare authority figure to realign our health and our well-being. But despite us being in the midst of another serious pandemic, most of us do not even know the name of our current Surgeon General, and thus we don't even know where to turn for honest and reliable information to guide our behaviors. Again, I will state that our nation is in desperate need of a healthcare authority figure in this position with apolitical ties to realign our health and to once again help us to get all back on track to a path to better overall well-being. But let's move on. Let's talk about what we're doing in our hospitals for those who are sick enough to require hospitalization. What have those who practice boots-on-the-ground COVID care learned during this pandemic? What is working and what is currently being practiced? For starters, fewer people than before are needing to be intubated, that is, placed on a ventilator. That's a good thing, of course, because there was a time when we were worried that we might soon run out of ventilators, that is, that we would experience some of the same tragedies seen in other countries where those suffering from hypoxia were left to die as there simply weren't enough ventilators, not enough equipment. How are we accomplishing this? Well, for starters, we have been successfully employing high-flow heated oxygen therapy to countless people, allowing them to continue to breathe on their own, keeping them out of the ICU. Whereas at one time, it was commonplace for people to receive no more than, say, six to eight liters of oxygen per minute through nasal cannula prongs strapped under the nose. It's now not all uncommon for COVID-19 patients to receive 30 or more liters of oxygen per minute through larger diameter nasal prongs using the highest oxygen percentages possible allowing enough of the life-sustaining gas to trickle into our COVID patients' bloodstreams. We are now prescribing remdesivir early on, a powerful yet expensive antiviral agent not available to us in the earliest phase of the pandemic, and once acquired, previously reserved only for the sickest of the sick, perhaps those who may, frankly, have already been beyond recovery at that time. Because the serum of those previously infected with COVID-19 contains therapeutic levels of antiviral antibodies, we are now administering convalescent plasma from recovered donors to newly diagnosed patients in the early phase of their hospitalization, yielding remarkable results. Because we have identified various inflammatory markers in the bloodstream of COVID-positive patients, which predict which of those infected will likely progress to the hyper-inflammatory phase, we look at these markers in all of our hospitalized COVID patients and we prescribe immune-modulating agents such as the steroid dexamethasone to those with high marker levels so as to minimize the likelihood of their disease worsening. For those who do need intubation, we have changed the way we run their ventilators, and we add the gas nitric oxide to the inhaled mix to optimize the flow of oxygen to and through the lungs. And we have tweaked a number of other critical care measures so as to optimize the likelihood of a good outcome in all of those affected. In summary, we have learned a lot about COVID-19, and we have been much more successful in managing these patients compared to when the virus first became a known entity. But it all comes at a ridiculous cost, and that's where I'm going next. Nothing is more irritating to me than the fallacious comments from the peanut gallery of those who know very little, if anything, about healthcare who say that doctors and hospitals are getting rich off of COVID. This is absolutely not true. Doctors and nurses are not getting paid more. Doctors and nurses are not getting rich due to COVID. Yes, we are working many more hours, and yes, we are working much harder. Those who get paid an hourly rate do get paid overtime for working overtime. But most physicians are not hourly workers, and none of my physician colleagues receive overtime pay. We are salaried employees, and those who get paid a salary get paid if we work a normal number of hours or if we work many, many more hours. In fact, everyone I know received a cut in our salary, all because of COVID. Hospital administrators took a salary cut, doctors took a salary cut, and nurse practitioners and physician assistants all took a salary cut. Why? Because COVID is costing the hospitals and our health system an arm and a leg. 
the cost of caring for COVID patients far exceeds any reimbursement for caring for COVID patients. It's a financial loser from the very beginning. Dozens of hospitals across the nation have already closed down or have filed for bankruptcy because of COVID, and dozens more are in jeopardy of following suit. The American Hospital Association recently reported that hospitals have lost over $300 billion this year due to COVID-related costs, and perhaps half of all hospitals will remain in the red by the year's end. And this remains the situation despite the CARES Act money, which the federal government has paid to many hospitals specifically intended to ease the financial burden of treating COVID patients. One particular hospital on the west side of Chicago recently received a $500,000 CARES Act check, but because that same hospital already spent a million dollars on PPE to protect its workers and because annual hospital expenses fall into the $100 million range, and this particular hospital serves a population with a large number of Medicaid patients, those additional federal dollars did little to help the situation. Because almost all insurance companies reimburse hospitals and doctors a set amount for a particular diagnosis, it behooves everyone in that health system to treat every patient efficiently, safely, and well. Treating patients who recover faster than anticipated benefits the hospital financially. But because COVID patients often have significant medical comorbidities, and because COVID patients who have, say, pneumonia tend to be much sicker than conventional pneumonia patients and stay in the hospitals much longer than most pneumonia patients, and because the drugs to treat COVID are so much more expensive than traditional pneumonia drugs, hospitals lose money treating COVID patients. Whereas it is true that there is incentive pay to treat COVID patients, this in no way covers the egregiously expensive cost of care and continues to, in fact, strain our healthcare systems, potentially forcing many more hospitals to close their doors entirely. Whereas almost all businesses are suffering financially from this pandemic, I assure you that hospitals are also suffering. I urge any and all of you who believe otherwise to be careful with your criticisms and your negative commentary as demoralizing those who are caring for your friends, neighbors, and relatives in our hospitals does not help anyone or anything. We are all in this together, and that includes our financial woes as well. And speaking of woes, I really don't understand why it's so difficult for some people to wear a mask. Surgical masks and even well-constructed cloth masks worn properly significantly decrease the spread of respiratory illness. COVID is spread via the respiratory tract, and so wearing a mask minimizes the spread of COVID. Of course, I'm well aware that there are plenty of people out there who believe that the rules requiring one to wear a mask impinges on their personal freedoms. But there are plenty of rules out there directing what we wear. The no shirt, no shoes, no service signs posted on many store entrances Make it such that bare-chested and barefooted patrons are not allowed and will be denied entry. I've never seen a sign telling people to wear pants, but imagine if someone felt that covering up from the waist down limited his personal freedom, and as such, he demanded to walk into a store completely bottomless. How fast do you think it would take for the police to come in and carry him away in handcuffs? I am well aware of all the postings and articles out there which claim that masks don't help, but my rebuttal to all this is as follows. I'm sorry, but masks do help. But surgical masks and cloth masks only help prevent the spread of COVID from the asymptomatic, presymptomatic, or actively diseased person to another. And masks only help if people wear the masks over their mouths and their nose. Thus, if I wear a mask, it is not to prevent me from catching COVID, but it's to prevent me from spreading the virus, the virus which I may not even believe or realize I'm carrying to another. Thus, if every single person wore a mask at all times, the likelihood of spreading COVID would be minuscule. Healthcare workers who treat COVID patients wear an N95 mask because that particular mask, if properly fit tested, will prevent the coronavirus from entering their respiratory system. 
But healthcare workers treating COVID patients are at particularly high risk because for a variety of reasons, patients sick with COVID may not be wearing a mask when they come into the hospital or clinic. And these same patients may require a procedure which creates a lot of aerosolizing mist, which in the case of an infected patient is teeming with COVID. If, however, all patients wore a regular mask at all times, and all healthcare workers wore a regular mask at all times, and no aerosolizing procedures were, were ever required, even healthcare workers would be at very low risk of contracting the virus. And for those of you who feel that if you are outside of a building that masks don't matter, let me remind you of the Rose Garden. For those of you who don't know what I'm referring to, on September 26th of this year, the nomination ceremony of our most recent Supreme Court justice was held on the lawn of the White House Rose Garden. It was held outside, and many people were not wearing masks. Within the incubation period of the virus, many people who attended that event became COVID positive. In fact, seven days later, the President of the United States was hospitalized with COVID. And whereas we don't know if it was the President or any other member in attendance at that ceremony who served as the primary vector, it is clear that failing to wear masks at that ceremony was a public health error. If anyone believes that simply opening the windows or being outside in the open air somehow prevents the virus from being infective, then please hear from my mouth that you are misinformed. This is why social distancing is still important. When people speak loudly, sing, or enthusiastically cheer at a sports bar, an invisible cloud of respiratory mist spreads out in all directions. In most cases, that cloud dissipates after a distance of about six feet, and thus it is important to stay six feet apart so as to avoid the viral particles contained within that cloud. But some people are still exposed to exhaled viral particles outside of that six-foot zone, which is why it's really necessary to wear a mask and practice social distancing. But let me get back to masks. Being a surgeon, I have worn a mask for huge parts of my day for most of my adult life. In fact, all of the OR staff wears a mask over their mouth and their nose every day for up to 12 hours at a time. None of us have had to take breaks so we could remove our mask in order to breathe better. Nobody in my OR ever gets asthma attacks because of a mask. Nobody I know ever gets sick or lightheaded from wearing a mask. I often wonder if an anti-masker checked into a hospital for a knee replacement or is being wheeled into surgery to have his gallbladder removed if he might balk if the entire OR staff decided to toss their masks in the garbage and proceed with surgery in a more freeing and liberating manner. If you want us to wear a mask, then our population needs to wear a mask as well. So I ask, are you tired of COVID yet? Do you want it to go away? Well, I certainly do, but I assure you that COVID is not going away. And in fact, COVID is much more prevalent now than ever before and will remain a problem until everyone becomes immune to the virus via mass immunization, long-term antibodies from prior infection, or T-cell-mediated immunity. If society doesn't start behaving for the greater good of the collective population, then I assure you that our governors will soon step in and clamp down hard on those who remain in noncompliance with all the public health directives out there intended to keep the COVID curve down to a flattened, manageable level. Small business owners will be forced to close their doors again, restaurants will no longer be allowed to serve patrons indoors, and hospitals will be forced to shut down elective surgery to divert OR staff to the ERs, ICUs, and medical floors caring for the increased number of hospitalized COVID patients. We once again need to flatten this curve. It truly is necessary and not simply a cliche statement. And what can we do to again flatten this curve? We must wear a mask over our mouth and nose. We must maintain a safe social distance of six feet from one another. And we must wash our hands frequently. It's the same thing that countless public health officials have said from the very beginning of this COVID pandemic. 
Those recommendations have not changed, but people's behaviors have changed. When COVID first hit the news and when people were really scared, they stayed home. They wore a mask, went out, they socially distanced themselves very well, and they washed their hands. But now, countless people are non-compliant with most of those recommendations, and as a result, COVID is worse than ever before. I'm a healthcare guy, but I'm also a member of a community whose friends and neighbors own restaurants and small businesses or who work in the establishments and are dependent on their employment to feed their families and to pay their bills. For the sake of our friends and family and for the sake of those who own and work in these small business establishments, we as a society need to be more COVID conscious and public health compliant. For the sake of those out there who may be suffering from a number of chronic conditions, hoping to get scheduled for an elective surgery, so as to not force hospitals to shut down elective surgery, we need to wear our masks and socially distance ourselves from one another to minimize the number of COVID-related hospital admissions. For the sake of the old and vulnerable, so as to not be the one who unknowingly passes along the virus, which causes an elderly man or woman to die unnecessarily, we need to do all that we can to avoid others who may not be as cautious during this pandemic. And for your own sake, so as to eliminate the possibility of being one of those who experience much more than just a mild case of COVID, for the sake of your bank account, which likely won't appreciate the result in the hospital bills, and for the sake of your future, possibly plagued with COVID-related health decline as you age naturally, just do the right thing. Wear a mask at all times, maintain a safe social distance of six feet apart, and wash your hands. It really is that simple, and it really is not that much to ask. So hopefully at this point, I've brought you all up to speed on what's going on with COVID in our country. It really is a troubling time for all of us. But at the same time, we can make it through this pandemic as long as we all take a few simple precautions, we all make a few concessions, and we all listen to the public health experts. As I'm doubtful that a vaccine will be readily available in sufficient quantities for perhaps many more months, we are all going to have to maintain a course of vigilance for at least another several months to a half year lest we potentially overwhelm our hospitals or worse yet, be the reason why someone dear to us succumbs from the virus. And on that less than upbeat final note, I will sign off. This is Healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I am Dr. James Cole. Thank you for listening. This podcast and the rest of the podcasts in this series reflect my opinions and do not necessarily represent the positions of any other institution or entity. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Marie Hathaway for the artwork and for producing this podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed the guitar music because that is me playing and taking my own creative liberties. And we hope that you will again join us for our next episode of Healthcare in America, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly.